Biden, I have been the most transparent president and administration in the history of our country by far. <laughs> but we're fighting all the subpoenas. <laughs> well, sure, that's what transparent and administrations do. They fight subpoenas. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Naturally. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Oh, hello. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica with you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. Out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Goldendale, Washington's KBGD, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. And, of course, we stream every day on the internets for your listening convenience on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, not to mention available on your favorite podcast site near you. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today uh, on, well, you know, that constitutional crisis that many of us expected would be coming soon. Well, we seem to be getting closer to it by the day, if not by the hour right now with the Trump administration now pretty much just saying they have no intention of responding to any lawful inquiry or legal request or constitutional subpoena from Congress despite the legislative branch's constitutional duty to oversee and serve as a check on the executive branch. Make no mistake, we have never seen anything like this in this country. I know that it all sort of uh, seems normal now. One uh, Trump disaster bleeds into the next, but no, we have never seen anything like this. We have never seen an administration saying, no, we are not going to respond to Congress in any way, shape or form. This is unheard of. So uh, this is barreling towards constitutional crisis. And then, you know, that stolen Supreme Court, which Republicans packed to assure a far right majority which we argued would result in a generation of horrific rulings for those who believe in things like rights and freedoms and, yes, even the Constitution. Well, given what happened on Tuesday at the Supreme Court during oral arguments over a question on citizenship that the administration wants to add to the 2020 census and which three different lower federal courts found that the administration blatantly lied about, 
Well, that stolen Supreme Court, uh, those uh, <laughs> that those SCOTUS chickens, as they say, uh, may now be coming home to roost. Um, and shortly, my uh, guest today, Mark Joseph Stern, who was in the courtroom for oral argument yesterday in that case, he will join us to discuss both that case and the constitutional crises that this country now finds itself on the very brink of under this unprecedented scofflaw presidency. So, hey, welcome to the broadcast. <laughs> I know. Just when you think it couldn't get any worse or any more absurd. I mean, I guess who we're just... thought it couldn't get any more worse or more absurd? Uh, at some point, I thought that maybe, hey, at some point this is going to slow down or stop or somebody's going to step up. And apparently not. Well, uh, very quickly, before we get to all of that fantastic news, uh, since I got a lot to talk to Mark about, and uh, and we owe you a green news report. <laughs> yes, we do. A little bit later than we uh, uh, had planned. We ran out of time for it on yesterday's broadcast. I am sorry, Desi Doyen. <laughs> I won't let that happen again. Uh, but hey, it w well, I might let it happen again. But anyway, <laughs> it was Election Day on Tuesday in a number of places around the country. So I want to quickly hit some uh, reported results here of two races of note for different reasons in each case. The first was in Tennessee, where Republican Bill Powers reportedly won a special election for the state Senate, according to AP. The Clarksville city councilman and auto dealer defeated Democrat Juanita Charles by a bit more than nine percentage points on Tuesday. Charles is a U.S. Army veteran and a Clarksville real estate agent. The Senate District 22 seat opened up after Republican Mark Green won his current seat in the U.S. House. Last year, Republicans have a supermajority in both chambers of the state General Assembly in Tennessee. So with Powers win on Tuesday, the GOP now has a 28 to 5 Senate majority over Democrats. So Tuesday's special election was not going to change that uh, either way, I, even if the uh, Democrat Charles had pulled off an upset there. But uh, in case you were wondering where the electorate is here where are we? Sometime uh, mid-late April 2019, uh, even in what is now seen as deep red Tennessee, there should be some encouraging signs for Democrats. Nathaniel Rakich of 538.com noted on Twitter last night after the results were in from Tennessee that Powers' defeat over Charles was about 10 points, 54 to 44. But he noted that even though the Democrat lost here, this was a 13-point margin swing towards Democrats from the seats uh, Republican, uh, what do they call it, R plus 22-point partisan lean. Um, so a 13-point swing towards Democrats from what might otherwise have been expected. That's similar to what we've seen in many of the, elect the elections that have taken place since 2016. So in case you were wondering if the electorate is still fired up against Republicans, well, there's another sign that may uh, or may not mean something as we move into the 2020 cycle. But I just wanted to note it also in another election in Tampa, Florida, of note for a completely different reason. Uh, Florida, of course, being another very important swing state for 2020. Tampa, Florida voters on Tuesday overwhelmingly chose former police chief Jane Castor 
in a landslide as the city's next mayor, making her the first openly gay mayor of one of Florida's largest cities. The 59-year-old caster, who spent more than 30 years with the Tampa Police Department before her retirement uh, as chief in 2015, she won nearly three-quarters of the vote Tuesday night, easily outpacing 76-year-old banker David Stratz. Caster nearly won the race to uh, replace the retiring mayor Bob Buckhorn outright back in March, uh, early March, in the primary, finishing with 48 percent of the vote in the in that race. But she needed 50 percent plus one to win outright. Um, she only came up with 48 percent on March 5th. Strats uh, finished the primary with about 15 percent of the vote in that first round, even though he spent more money than the other seven candidates in the race combined. In Tuesday's runoff, Strats tried to uh, tie Castor to what he labeled corruption and an old boys network in City Hall. So a 76-year-old banker tried to label the 59-year-old lesbian as a member of the old boys network. <laughs> and it looks like it didn't work. Did not work. Uh, he spent, Even though he spent more than $5 million of his own money on that race, underscoring the fact that uh, taxes for bankers are not nearly high enough. This dude had $5 million of his own money to throw away on a race for mayor. That was more than double the amount that Castor raised and spent. But uh, money can't buy you love, I guess, as they say, or apparently votes, at least in Tampa's mayoral election, the attacks against Castor did not work. Castor took more than 73% of the vote on Tuesday. Strats, uh, to his credit, in his concession, told his supporters that now is the time to rally around the new mayor. Both Strats and Castor are Democrats. Castor will become the first openly gay mayor of a major city in the southeastern U.S., according to Human Rights uh, to the Human Rights Campaign. Smaller cities in Florida like Key West, Gainesville, Fort Lauderdale have elected gay mayors, but never one the size of Tampa, which has a population of some 385,000. Castor is the second gay politician, second gay female politician, for that matter, to win the mayorality of a large American city in less than one month after Lori Lightfoot, you will recall, Won the right to run Chicago earlier this month. Lightfoot, like Castor, won about three quarters of the vote. So no wonder right wingers are getting kind of freaked out about what's going on in their country and what they think is their nation, I guess. So, yes, uh, democracy going on around the country. Uh, even with the mess going on in D.C., even as Republicans in D.C., specifically the Trump administration, but also at the Supreme Court, I'm getting ahead of myself, uh, the uh, Trump administration uh, doing everything they can to undermine democracy. Heading back to the nation's capital today, the House of Representatives asked a federal judge to block Defense Department funding from being funneled unconstitutionally into the construction of Donald Trump's border wall, according to Politico today. House lawyers sent a formal request to U.S. District Judge Trevor McFadden 
to keep $6 billion in the Defense Department and anti-drug effort accounts where Congress had delegated that funding towards those efforts, not towards Donald Trump's wall. House General Counsel Doug Letter wrote in the motion, quote, defendants are moving quickly to construct the border wall and they have awarded contracts against funds that Congress did not appropriate for that purpose. And more contracts are coming soon, he said. Once made, these unconstitutional expenditures cannot be undone and the grave institutional injury inflicted on the House cannot be remedied. Congress, of course, if you believe in the U.S. Constitution, as conservatives used to pretend they did, Congress controls the government purse strings, not the White House. But since issuing a supposed national emergency declaration at the border, Trump has been orchestrating the use of military funds to award contracts to private companies to build and repair portions of the U.S.-Mexico border wall, the pet pro uh, project of Donald Trump. The move was blocked by both the House and the Senate. So there were some Republicans in both houses that stood up and said no to this, uh, but they were vetoed by Donald Trump. And now uh, it's that move is being challenged in the federal courts and where, once again, in days gone by, uh, seen we've seen uh, e even so-called conservatives on the Supreme Court who would be likely to follow the requirements of the U.S. Constitution and say no to something like this. Uh, but those days, according to what happened in the U.S. Supreme Court on Tuesday, the stolen U.S. Supreme Court on Tuesday, those days may be slipping away faster than you even realize. Faster than even uh, folks out there around the country who call themselves conservatives may realize. The great Mark Joseph Stern of Slate joins us next to discuss some remarkable new hypocrisy from the so-called conservative justices on the Supreme Court and how the Trump administration is now moving into deeply, deeply unprecedented territory in undermining the rule of law and the authority of the co-equal branch of Congress. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The broadcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Apparently you can't count on anything anymore. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, you can't count on so-called conservatives on the Supreme Court actually acting as if they are conservative. Because, of course, we've told you for so many years they ain't really. 
Uh, and you apparently won't be able to count on the U.S. Census after 2020 either, unfortunately. But let's start here. President Trump on Tuesday said he is opposed to current and former White House aides providing testimony to congressional panels in the wake of Robert Mueller's special counsel report, intensifying, as The Washington Post calls it, a power struggle between his administration and House Democrats. I would describe it more as a constitutional crisis than a power struggle, but perhaps the Post thinks we're not there just quite yet. In an interview with The Washington Post on Tuesday night, Trump said that complying with congressional requests and subpoenas was unnecessary after the White House cooperated with special counsel Robert Mueller's probe of Russian interference in the president's own conduct in office. But, of course, the White House didn't fully cooperate with Mueller's probe. In fact, Donald Trump tried to kill it several times, as detailed in that Mueller report. Nor did he personally testify to the special counsel, as had been requested for more than a year, and as Donald Trump pretended that he really, really was looking forward to doing. But, of course, he lied. Now, Trump tells the Post, there is no reason to go any further, and especially in Congress, where it's very partisan, obviously very partisan, he said, explaining why he has decided to prevent all cooperation with and block constitutionally mandated oversight by Congress. Trump's comments came as the White House made it clear that it plans to broadly defy legal congressional requests for information from Capitol Hill, moving the two branches of government closer to a constitutional collision. On Tuesday, two White House officials said the administration plans to fight a subpoena issued by the House Judiciary Committee for the testimony of former White House counsel Don McGahn by asserting executive privilege over his testimony. Separately, the administration directed a former White House official not to comply with a subpoena from the House Oversight Committee, prompting the committee to move to hold him in contempt of Congress and... The U.S. Treasury Department, under Trump appointee Steven Mnuchin, defied a second demand from the House Democrats to turn over six years of President Trump's tax returns. Taken together, the Washington Post reported on Tuesday night, the move marks a dramatic escalation of tensions between the president and congressional Democrats, deepening a fight that may ultimately be resolved, they say, by a protracted court battle. I would add, and or resolved, of course, by impeachment. Friendly reminder here that one of the three impeachment articles against Richard Nixon was for contempt of Congress. Trump already seems to have met the requirements of the first two Nixon counts. That would be obstruction of justice and abuse of power. So he's already well on his way. And on Wednesday... The Justice Department said that it will also not comply with yet another congressional subpoena for a Trump administration official to testify in a House panel's investigation of the addition of a citizenship question to the 2020 census. In a letter to the House Oversight and Reform Committee, Assistant Attorney General Stephen Boyd informed the panel that John Gore, the principal deputy assistant attorney general for the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division will not give a deposition to Congress. Gore's refusal to appear before the committee is at the direction 
of Trump's new attorney general, William Barr, according to the letter, escalating the already explosive fight between the executive and legislative branches. Barr's decision to block Gore's testimony comes a day after the White House blocked a top security clearance official from testifying to the oversight panel in their probe of the security clearance process. House Oversight Committee Chair Elijah Cummings announced that he would, in fact, hold the official Carl Klein in contempt of Congress in the coming days. The committee is also investigating the administration's plan to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census, despite evidence it could lead to an undercount of millions of people. In fact, officials estimate that about six and a half million people probably would be affected in states and urban areas with large Hispanic and immigrant populations, places that just tend to vote for Democrats, as it turns out. The decennial count of the nation's population determines the size of each state's congressional delegation, the number of votes it receives in the Electoral College, and how the federal government allocates hundreds of billions of dollars for all manner of projects across the country, and yes, for the following 10 years after the next, ten, uh, after the next census. And as all of that was playing out on Tuesday in the Republicans' stolen U.S. Supreme Court, the justices there were hearing a case on whether Trump's Commerce Department, under the direction of his Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, would be allowed to add that controversial question on citizenship to the 2020 census, as the administration is very much hoping to do, and as three lower federal courts have now blocked from them being able to add. Uh, that after finding that Ross actually lied about his reasons for wanting to add that question in the first place. Our friend Mark Joseph Stern, legal and Supreme Court reporter for Slate.com, was at the high court on Tuesday for oral arguments in the case. And he reports today that the news is not encouraging. By all indications, he writes, the Supreme Court is poised to let the Trump administration add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. The consequences of its probable ruling will last longer than Donald Trump's presidency, he says, well into the term of the next president and possibly the one after that. Hispanics and immigrants will be undercounted, leading to overrepresentation in the House of Representatives and state legislatures of disproportionately white and rural regions. The result will entrench Republican power into the 2030s, depriving Democrats of representation in Congress and state legislatures, as well as depriving them of electoral votes. States with large immigrant communities will lose billions in federal funding. Ultimately, he writes, the citizenship question is not some wonky dispute about proper census protocol, but rather a dispute over who counts and who doesn't in America. Joining us now with more terrific news on all of that and much more today that he's been covering as the nation continues its current course toward a number of potential historic constitutional crises is Mark Joseph Stern of Slate. Welcome back to the broadcast, amigo. Thank you so much for having me back on. Always a pleasure, even in dark times like these. And they are getting darker, it seems, by the day. Uh, in fact, Mark, this seems to be the week when Trump and the Republicans' stolen Supreme Court 
may finally be beginning to pay off for reals on a number of levels. I want to get to the disturbing census case in a moment, but I also want to quickly get your thoughts, if you don't mind, on a few other disturbing and perhaps related items of note today. Um, Donald Trump suggested on Wednesday that he would ask the Supreme Court to somehow intervene if Democrats move to impeach him, tweeting today, uh, first in all caps, I did nothing wrong. If the partisan Dems ever tried to impeach, I would first head to the U.S. Supreme Court. Not only are there no high crimes and misdemeanors, he, he tweets, there are no crimes by me at all. Uh, Mark, I want to get your take on that. How could the Supremes possibly help him in the case of impeachment, which, according to the Constitution, as far as I can tell, specifies no role for the court other than the chief justice uh, presiding over a trial for uh, potential removal in the U.S. Senate? Uh, An excellent question and the right point, uh, I think, to be making here. Of course, under the Constitution, impeachment is a political process, not a legal process. This is uh, solely the province of the House of Representatives to vote to impeach, uh, and then the Senate to hold a trial and decide whether or not to remove the president. Um, but I think this tweet is still important and revealing uh, because it really illustrates just how Trump has come to view the Supreme Court as being in his pocket. He thinks that whenever he has a problem, he can run to the Supreme Court and it'll help him out. Uh, he says, well, if I'm facing impeachment, if I'm facing real threats from Democrats, I'll just run over to SCOTUS and my guys on the court, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh on the gang, will get me out of hot water. And here's the tragic thing. He's not entirely wrong. <laughs> uh, this court does seem incredibly solicitous of Donald Trump and does seem willing to warp or ignore the law in order to help out Donald Trump. I think that intervening in impeachment would probably be a step too far for most of the justices because it's so outrageous. But anything short of that is starting to seem like uh, the conservatives are ready to hop in front of the train and protect Trump from any kind of danger that might be coming his way. Yeah, and I, I I gotta say, and we'll get to it as I said in a moment, the census issue seems to illustrate that just about as well as I've seen anything uh, illustrate that under this particular court. Before we get there, related issue, uh, your top line take on the findings of the long-awaited, if still redacted, Mueller report. Do you see actual crimes documented there, specifically High crimes and misdemeanors, uh, as I do, and as uh, Donald Trump says, uh, he didn't commit, but would go to the Supreme Court to block if uh, if Congress found them. Absolutely, of course. I mean, I think anyone who is not uh, insanely biased toward the president, anyone who has a basic grasp on these issues, who reads through the entire report, uh, as I did, will see not only that Trump and his associates openly welcomed help from Russia and Russian agents and people affiliated with the Russian government during the 2016 election, even if they weren't ultimately able to collude in the, in the very narrow way defined by law, uh, but that Trump meddled in the Mueller investigation over and over again, uh, attempting to impede Mueller's work, his investigation into Trump's affairs, committing obstruction of justice on, by my count, at least five or six separate occasions. I found this report astonishingly damning. Uh, Mueller makes clear at the beginning that the only reason he didn't indict the president is because he feels bound by 
uh, DOJ rules that say the president cannot be indicted while he is in office. Otherwise, I think it's incredibly clear that Mueller would have indicted the president for obstruction of justice, because that is what the president clearly committed. Mm -hmm. There's very little question if you read the report. So this is a pretty open and shut case. Obstruction is a crime. It's a high crime. uh, And I think Congress has a duty to consider impeachment right now. I share your uh, thoughts on that, Mark. Um, and I would also add, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it here because I wanted to ask you about this. We may have talked about it before, but isn't it long past time, frankly, uh, for the House Judiciary Committee, House and Senate, I guess, to hold a hearing on whether indicting a sitting president is constitutional or not. The the Justice Department's opinion that a sitting president cannot be indicted, frankly, seems wildly off base, particularly since the uh, 25th Amendment was added to allow the vice president to take the uh, to take the place of the president if if the president cannot serve for any amount of time. Um, I mean, the entire concept of the DOJ's opinion here seems incredibly off base. I've used the example before. If a president, you know, Donald Trump actually shot someone on Fifth Avenue, are they really saying that because he's the president, he could not be indicted for murder? I mean, that makes zero sense to me. It seems like we need to have hearings and maybe a new statute on this in uh, in Congress. Uh, Right. It makes zero sense, and there's nothing in the Constitution about it. Uh, Certainly no constitutional provision that says a sitting president shall not be indicted or imprisoned. Uh, And as you say, in fact, we have amended the Constitution to provide a procedure by which uh, the vice president can fully assume the duties and responsibilities of the president if he's removed. Uh, We have all of the backup options in place, and yet this Justice Department firmly believes the president can't be indicted. Uh, I think Congress holding hearings would be a great first step, Uh, and I like the idea of Congress actually passing a law that says, yes, the president can be indicted, hopefully overriding the president's veto if it comes, because at the very least, we have to put this to the courts. We have to create a real challenge here Mm -hmm. to this absurd conventional wisdom that the president's above the law. That is a toxic idea. Trump is absolutely seizing on it. Impeachment is a good solution, but it should not be the only solution. Uh, And people like Mueller, special counsels, should not feel boxed in by this extra legal precedent set out by the DOJ years ago when the Constitution should not be a roadblock to indicting a sitting president. But clearly, uh, Miller did feel boxed. In. Mueller did feel boxed in by that, and uh, you know, and and now we're left with what we have, and a, a and a bunch of frankly uh, scared Democrats, scared to move forward and do the right thing, and at the same time, a president who says, "Oh look, I've been uh, cleared of all charges because I wasn't charged by a special uh, counsel who." felt like he was bound to not uh, uh, charge the president. So, yeah, this needs to be clarified somehow. I'm going to keep making noise on that. Uh, as I mentioned... Please do. Yeah, and, I, I mean, hearings. That seems like the least we could have in Congress, in this Congress, at this point on this particular issue. Um As mentioned in my intro there, Mark, uh, the administration is now moving to block pretty much all lawful, constitutionally mandated congressional oversight, including blocking executive branch personnel from testifying at all uh, or turning over documents despite congressional subpoenas. Uh, In one sense, it seems the administration does not have a legal leg to stand on in these cases. But on the other hand, 
uh, frankly, that seemed to be the case on the census matter as well. Are all bets now off when it comes to conventional wisdom and decades of, of case law when it comes to this stolen Supreme Court potentially interceding on behalf of, of, uh, of Trump on issues that would have been laughed out of court in previous administrations? Well, I'm certainly worried. I think we should all be worried. Uh, and I think it's noteworthy that Trump and his associates are treating these subpoenas and these calls for testimony from the House as jokes, right? I mean, they, they, some of them, they don't even respond to them. Others, they reject them. They say no. Uh, they're acting as though the House of Representatives, as though Congress, a co-equal branch of government, is just a clown car. And, and it's really quite offensive, I think, should be offensive to the courts, uh, because this is not how executive privilege works. Executive privilege is a relatively narrow doctrine designed to ensure that the inner workings, consultations, proceedings, and discussions uh, within the White House are not unduly uh, revealed mm -hmm. to the public in a way that could curtail the president's decision-making. But this is just executive privilege that means anyone the president talks to doesn't have to talk to Congress. I've never heard of that rule before. The courts have never promulgated that rule before. So I think these, these, this argument is totally absurd. But again, and, and we keep coming back to this point, I am worried at this Supreme Court because arguments yep. that we might have thought were absurd a year or two or three years ago suddenly seem plausible when they're going to go before Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch. Yeah, it sure does. And I got to, I, I mean, he's not even, as far as I can tell, they're not even invoking executive privilege yet in any case other than, I think, Don McGahn, uh, which where the uh, executive privilege was already waived when they when McGahn was allowed to uh, speak with the special counsel. These other cases, they're just ignoring them. They're just saying, oh, it's not in the uh, I the interest of the uh, uh, administration to let this person uh, testify or to uh, turn over those documents. I I it's, uh, well, I don't think it's, any... It's, it's befuddling. <laughs> yeah. It's really befuddling. I think when push comes to shove, they will say that it's executive privilege, but right now they aren't even giving it yep. the serious thought that that would require. And I can imagine how the Republicans in Congress would be reacting if a Hillary Clinton administration were doing <laughs> these same things. We would already be in the uh, uh, trial in the U.S. Senate at this point, I suspect, uh, for impeachment. All right, uh, you write that it was I a... I absolutely agree. You write that it was a very bad day for truth at the Supreme Court on Tuesday uh, at this argument over the census question. You were there... What happened and, and, and what happened to the truth and what you say is even worse than what I have already read from your summary of the court's uh, oral arguments over whether a question about citizenship may be added to the 2020 census. Uh, I, mean, I mean, this was just a real bloodbath, I think, for the plaintiffs here, because this case should have been so simple, right? I mean, Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce, lied about his reason for including a citizenship question on the 2020 census. He lied and he got found out. Uh, he is the one who asked the Justice Department to create some pretext uh, for the citizenship question. The DOJ only sent him this, this letter that said, please include the question, because he asked for it. Uh, and beyond that, Ross busted through a bunch of statutory roadblocks that are supposed to prevent the inclusion of gratuitous questions on the census. Uh, and the lower court in this case said, I count Wilbur Ross violating the law in at least six separate ways. And the Supreme Court only has to find one of those ways to be compelling uh, to stop this citizenship question and say, no, you don't get to do this. 
but I don't think a majority of the court's willing to step in and stand up for the law. And I fear the reason is because they know exactly why the Trump administration wants a citizenship question on the census. They know that Hispanics and immigrants will be afraid to answer the census. They will answer it in fewer numbers. There will be an undercount of minorities, specifically Hispanics in this country. Uh, and states like California are going to lose seats in the House of Representatives and electoral votes. That is all in the interest of the Republican members of the Supreme Court. Uh, and I hate to be so cynical about all this, but I fear that there's no other explanation for these justices just tossing their principles and sense of logical consistency to the wind and defending the Trump administration when what it did here is absolutely indefensible. And you've got sort of uh, three different places where they did sort of toss their previous beliefs seemingly to the wind. Let's uh, run through these real quickly. You note that uh, John Roberts, uh, who wrote the opinion that gutted the Voting Rights Act back in 2013, that he seemed to suddenly be buying into this argument that the uh, uh, that the uh, Commerce uh, Secretary Wilbur Ross gave that, oh, we need to ask this question in order to better enforce the Voting Rights Act. And now all of a sudden, John Roberts appeared concerned about the need to enforce the Voting Rights Act uh, as a reason to add this question to the to the census. Right. And this is a man who has spent his career attacking the Voting Rights Act, who opposed it as a young DOJ official in the 1980s, who, who wrote Shelby County versus Holder, gutting a key provision of the Voting Rights Act, who has uh, almost never voted, I can't even count a single time, that he's actually voted to apply the VRA. And suddenly here he is expressing this deep, grave concern for voting rights and the Voting Rights Act. It is beyond hypocrisy. Uh, and Roberts, of course, was probably the closest we'd get to a swing vote in this case. So if, if the plaintiffs lost Roberts, they may have just lost the case. That could be very bad news. Uh, but in even more uh, hypocritical news, uh, Justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, both Trump appointees, then uh, cited international law in order to support the administration's case? I thought right-wing jurists believe, you know, hate international law. They say it has no place in American jurisprudence, but all of a sudden it did on Tuesday? On Tuesday and Tuesday alone, uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh have written and spoken about how we should never look to the practices of other countries uh, because those countries look to us. We stand alone. American exceptionalism, all of that... They are opposed to even considering international practices in most circumstances. But when they learned that the U.N. suggests a citizenship question and that other countries include a citizenship question on their censuses, in totally different contexts, mm -hmm. I should add, uh, they decide to cite that as a reason for it. It, it. Again, like hypocrisy doesn't even begin to capture what this is. I can only hope that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh begin to apply international law in death penalty cases as well. But something tells me that this is a ticket good for one right only. You know, and I should note, uh, Mark, you have been very fair to both Kavanaugh and Gorsuch uh, on decisions. I know you're uh, a, a progressive, so you're disinclined to agree with them on things, but you will give them credit when they do the right thing. So the fact that you're noting this hypocrisy here is not just because you're, uh, you know, a Trump hater. But actually looking at the hypocrisy that they seem to be exposing or that they seem to expose on Tuesday at the Supreme Court. And then there was this third point, deference to executive agencies that right wingers and this court have been railing against when it comes to 
you know, deference to uh, executive agencies like the EPA on climate and environmental concerns. Uh, how did they square that circle in saying, well, you know, even if it's not a good idea to add this question, the executive agency wants to do it, so we should allow them to do it? Yeah, I mean, for the first and last time, I suspect, you heard people like Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Alito saying that the court should simply mindlessly defer to unelected bureaucrats' manipulation of the law. Uh, this is absurd, of course, because like you said, uh, agency deference is the chief bugaboo of the legal conservative movement. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is something that the conservative justices have been warring against their entire professional careers. They say we should never defer to what agencies say. We have to analyze everything, scrutinize everything agencies do ourselves. And yet now they're saying, oh, well, let's just defer to whatever Wilbur Ross, who was elected by zero Americans, uh, wants to do. I, I couldn't believe my ears when I was sitting there in the courtroom on Tuesday. It was truly shocking. To me to hear this. And, and we should underscore that this is a case where the uh, where the career professionals at this agency uh, again and again denied this question, said we shouldn't add it, said it will get, uh, result in a less accurate census. And that was all overridden, as I understand it, by Wilbur Ross. And, and the point that this would lead to a less accurate census, that even came up in the oral arguments. And as I understand it, the government, um, the uh, 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 what's his name, uh, Francisco, did no, not. Francisco, the Solicitor General. Solicitor General, yeah, that he did not even dispute that, uh, sort of agreeing that we could end up with a less accurate census. But too bad. That's what the agency wants. Yes, that's exactly what happened. And it was uh, an, another shocking moment. This whole thing was a real nightmare uh, to, to mm. behold, uh, because you had Francisco saying, yeah, all of the experts at the Census Bureau said the citizenship question would make the census uh, less precise and less accurate. Uh, and that shouldn't matter to the court, that the court should still overrule all of the experts and just defer to whatever uh, the Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, wants. Mm. Uh, th this is, again, this, is, this case is like a true test of the court's legitimacy in some ways, and at a minimum of the court's consistency. Uh, and to watch these justices just toss all of their principles out the window, it, it makes me think I'm going to struggle to defend this court as a nonpartisan institution, mm -hmm. which I often have, like mm -hmm. you said. Yeah. I will defend Gorsuch and even Kavanaugh, uh, but, but this case makes that really hard, because it seems to me that they are doing nothing other than going to bat for the president who appointed them. I got about one minute left here, Mark. You actually sounded surprised in your coverage uh, of this as to how the so-called conservative justices behaved here. Uh, why? Shouldn't shouldn't this have been expected by now, to be frank? Well, it depends on whether you're a cynic. And, and I try not to be a cynic because I want to believe that law is different from politics and that the court is not simply guided by partisanship. Uh, Roberts has occasionally ruled in ways that are not partisan. Uh, I think that Gorsuch also has a streak to him that's a, a little less partisan than you might assume that many Democrats assume. I was hoping that that would be on display, and it wasn't. It just wasn't. All I saw were five Republicans on the bench trying to help the Republican administration, and that makes me more cynical than I ever want to be. 
Boy, uh, as we say, elections and stolen Supreme Courts matter. We may be on the verge of finding out just how much over the next decade or so now after the census case and uh, the court agreeing to take on these LGBTQ employment, uh, anti-discrimination, civil rights uh, employment cases this fall. That doesn't look good either, as far as I can tell from your writing. We're short on time, so I'll point folks over to your work uh, at Slate.com, of course. And you should follow him on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. Mark Joseph Stern covers the law, the court system, the U.S. Supreme Court, and yes, LGBTQ issues over at Slate.com. Thanks, brother. Really appreciate you joining us today, and we will be talking to you again soon. Sorry to be such a downer. Hope I have better news for you next time. Yes, that would be nice. <laughs> Thanks, brother. <laughs> okay, uh, let's take... Oh, where, look at the time. Where has it gone? We have run out of time for, for the Green News Report, I'm afraid, <laughs> again, Tessie Doyen. No, we haven't. What? No? No. Oh, okay, that's coming up next. Uh, actually, Des, before I do that, real quickly, um, the, the, the talk about the, um, the Supreme Court, the justices here... Uh, deferring to the agencies in question. This is the big uh, question about whether the Supreme Court would uphold the so-called Chevron defense. Yes, Chevron deference. Deference. Um, That's basically, as Mark had already explained, was that the idea that the federal government and judges should defer to agency expertise, like scientists and economists, people who actually know what they're talking Mm -hmm. about, before a judge decides to overturn a rule that was promulgated by that agency. So in the case of uh, whether a, a pipeline can be blocked or something, if they refer to... Or whether pollution causes right. cancer, which we know that it does, uh-huh. but the Trump administration would like to repeal and weaken pollution rules by arguing that, you know, pollution, it's really not that bad. It's its too expensive to try to save lives. But the Chevron deference says that, well, you may have one a political opinion, they may have another political opinion. We should defer to the experts in the in these things. And this is what right wingers have been challenging now for a while. Yes. And Neil Gorsuch's mom was the one who used to run the EPA. I think it mm-hmm. was during the old the senior Bush administration. Right. She was the first one to try to challenge that. Now her son is on the Supreme Court and no doubt, I have no doubt, will try to uh, get rid of that particular way of dealing with these cases in order to make it easier well, to weaken rules. OK, fine. But it's going to be very hard after they were in there arguing uh, when it comes to the U.S. Census that, oh, we should just defer to the uh, federal agency whether they have good reasons or not these uh, political appointees say they want to add this question to the census so we should defer to them it is the complete opposite of what they have been arguing for a long time yeah and I'm not at all surprised I think we've seen that the Republicans and their conservative justices on the Supreme Court are willing to be as hypocritical as they need to be to get whatever result they are predetermined to want to get At some point, we will all stop being surprised by this. But for now, I still am, I guess. Uh, All right, let's take a quick break. And we will come back with the Green News Report with Desi Doyen and myself, Brad Friedman, right here on the Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. 
but we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, Desi Doyen, your GNR has, as usual, its uh, regular mix of, <laughs> uh, I want to say unleaded and leaded, but no, uh, of good and bad news. Uh, but it does uh, kick off with some unleaded news in the gas department, I guess. If you may have noticed around the country, yes, your gas prices are going up. That leads off our latest Green News report. Gas prices are higher again this week. And they are set to spike again after Trump imposes new sanctions on Iran oil. Redacted Mueller report shows Russian trolls stoked divisions over climate and coal in 2016 election. European Union acts to curb plastic pollution. Plus, we're actually making the Green New Deal come alive here in New York City. The Big Apple goes big with its own Green New Deal. All of those deals and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The goal remains simple, to deprive the outlaw regime of the funds it has used to destabilize the Middle East for four decades. Wow. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is going to deprive Donald Trump of money used to destabilize the Middle East. And incentivize Iran to behave like a normal country. Oh. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I haven't heard much talk about it until lately, but yes, gas prices have been spiking over the last several months. Yep, retail gas prices have spiked to their highest level yet in 2019, rising on average about 60 cents a gallon across the U.S., and they are set to spike even further because on Monday, the Trump White House announced that starting in May, it will impose sanctions on countries, including U.S. allies, that purchase oil from Iran. The U.S. had grand granted waivers when President Trump withdrew from the Obama-era Iran nuclear deal, despite the International Atomic Energy Agency reaffirming Iran's compliance with the deal just three weeks ago. But U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said on Monday the administration is further increasing pressure on Iran. The goal remains simple, to deprive the outlaw regime of the funds it has used to destabilize the Middle East for four decades and incentivize Iran to behave 
like a normal country. CNN reports oil industry analysts fear the Trump administration's decision will tighten global oil markets because of Trump's ongoing sanctions against other major oil-producing nations, Venezuela and Libya. So just a heads up, in the United States, oil price spikes typically contribute to inducing recessions. And in fact, it's good news for the oil companies, it's bad news for the American consumers, but it might be good news for the planet. We tend to burn less oil when it becomes more expensive. Well, there's that. So, see? There's a bright side. Meanwhile, the redacted version of special counsel Robert Mueller's probe into Russian interference in the 2016 election details how Russian social media trolls sought to use the declining U.S. coal industry as a flashpoint in a sophisticated campaign to exacerbate existing divisions on energy and climate change. In 2016, the Russian internet troll farm linked to Russian intelligence known as the Internet Research Agency, published hundreds of social media ads and messages and even helped organize real-life political rallies, falsely blaming regulations for coal's decline rather than market forces and cheaper natural gas and renewables. For example, the rallies featured a Miners for Trump poster with the caption, How many Pennsylvania workers lost their jobs due to Obama's disruptive policies? Help Mr. Trump fix it. Well, Trump hasn't fixed it. He'll never fix it. He can't fix it. But he can lie about fixing it. And he does. Yes, he does. But some good news. The European Union Parliament has passed a sweeping law to curb the scourge of plastic pollution in the oceans. The Parliament voted to ban a wide range of single-use plastic straws, stirrers, cutlery, styrofoam, and more by 2021. Tyranny! The EU member nations also agreed to a target of collecting and recycling 90% of beverage bottles by 2029. Well, very thoughtful tyranny. A federal judge in Montana has delivered a significant setback to Trump's attempts to increase coal mining on the public's land. A judge ruled that the Trump Interior Department violated federal law when it lifted a ban on new coal mines on federally managed public lands that was established by President Obama and ordered the agency to redo an environmental analysis. Oh, they're not going to like that. Finally, New York City is charging ahead with its own version of a Green New Deal to create jobs by fighting climate change. The Climate Mobilization Act is an omnibus package of six existing bills. It was passed on Earth Day, directs $14 billion in investments aimed at cutting the city's carbon emissions 30 percent by 2030. Mayor Bill de Blasio on MSNBC said that includes a ban on inefficient glass and steel skyscrapers and an ambitious building retrofit mandate requiring owners of the city's largest buildings to cut their energy use and emissions by 2030 or pay fines. The biggest source of emissions in New York City is buildings. We're putting clear, strong mandates, the first of any major city on the earth. Uh, and the city of New York, the government, we are going to get all of our energy from renewable sources in the next five years. Good for you, New York City. Thank you very much. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report.
Way to go, New York City. Uh, shout out to our peeps at Radio Free Brooklyn. Yes. Uh, by the way, uh, Bill de Blasio, he had been talking about running for president. Not that we need another person running for president, not uh, especially another white guy, I guess. But I don't know that we need anybody running for president additionally at this point. But do we know if de Blasio is still thinking of getting in as far as i know he is still maybe thinking of it i don't think he has definitively said that he is not but i i could be wrong about that well we'll see yeah i do want to add one quick thing though on this new york city green new deal that Mm -hmm. de blasio has has signed into law i mean it's it's going to be pretty strict and it's going to be pretty big because tyranny (laughs) because the the city is beholden to much of the state legislature to decide many of their specifics that they are allowed mm-hmm. to do as far as energy and, right. and other regulations. However, they do have control over building codes. And so what de Blasio said about the entire city government of right. the New York City, that they use as much energy as the entire state of Vermont. So switching for the New York City government, switching to renewable energy will be the equivalent, he said, of taking a million cars off the road. Nice. So this is a big deal. Yeah. This is a big deal. And it's good to see mayors stepping up around the country. It'll create a lot of jobs that cannot be outsourced. Uh, Especially while our uh, woeful president and Congress are just dropping the ball. So if we can't have Green New Deal yet nationally... Uh, At least we're getting underway in some cities around the country. Yeah, like here in Los Angeles, the Los Angeles City Mayor Eric Garcetti last week in his State of the City address noted that in the city of Los Angeles, we are now employing more people in green jobs, in renewable energy jobs, Mm -hmm. than are employed by the coal industry entirely in the United States. Wow. And he, too, said he was looking at a version of the Green New Deal for, uh, for Los Angeles. For the city of Los Angeles should be released later this month. All right. Very good. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. My thanks also to my guest today, Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That made available by the generous support of listeners. Yes, like you, who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi and me continue to do what we try to do every day over your public airwaves. Jude Cowell over at Facebook uh, gives us a, a, a five-star rating today and, sa- and adds, Brad Blog and the Bradcast deliver up-to-date news and information to the point, political commentary, interesting guests, and the perfect theme music. What more can we ask? Well, thank you, Jude. Thank uh, you. I'm sure there's something you can ask, but uh, we ain't got time to give it to you now. So anyway, you can find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters, both at the Brad Blog. You can drop me email if you like. I'm Bradcast at Bradblog.com. That is it. Until we meet again, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>